If you want this podcast free of ads, follow us now on patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Economic indicators. Who knows where this is going to end up? To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by ACAST. How are you doing there? It is podcast time. John is telling me here I was never really good with girls when he was a kid. Oh, Jesus Christ, Macker. We <laughs> <laughs> How you doing, Ed? <laughs> I'm all right. I'm all right. What's rocking your world, my my old mate? <laughs> Devil a bit. Now, come here, listen. I was thinking, you know, our weekly opening of the podcast, which says to understand economics, you have to understand human nature. Yes. I want to explore that a little bit more. Well, I really, I really believe that. And I believe that for economics to get the full picture, it has to open itself up to psychology. And, and marketing, yeah, marketing, like yeah, marketing yeah. is the way. And it struck me this week, I've been watching, do you remember when we were kids in June, we all became tennis players because of Wimbledon? Yeah. Right? Yeah, we were, kind were of, so impressionable, we right? We were so impressionable <laughs> that we actually decided that we were going to become tennis players for June. And then we all stopped in July. Yeah, but the, the thing about being tennis players in June is we played on the road, so it was tennis without nets. <laughs> I don't remember myself. But I was thinking, and none of us have but I was thinking, about tennis today, Naomi Osaka, mm. this extraordinary tennis player, right? Women's number one, yeah. all that sort of stuff, right? Clearly a young woman carrying all sorts of mental health issues, right? Mm. And she says, I don't like doing interviews, right? And she said, I prefer if I didn't do interviews before the French Open. And she's trying to say, I've got to get into my game head, right? Yeah. So whatever, like professional athletes get into this place when they're in the complete zone. And they'll tell you, it's almost like, it's like an out-of-body experience. They go into something. Yeah, but right? it's a whole thing about kind of sports psychology. And that's exactly. kind of what it's about. So this is, a, this is a young woman. She's 23 years old, right? Mm. Maybe even 22 years old. Very, very young. Same right? age as my Maggie. Yeah, so, so she's a young, young, yeah. young woman. Like, and this is what comes down to the economics. So I just say, what we want to talk about today is the economic stroke legalistic mind, stroke engineering mind, which are very, very akin to each other. Mm -hmm. And the marketing behavioral psychology, psychological mind. One of which the economic legalistic way of looking at the world is what we call very static. And the the, the psychological way of looking at the world is very dynamic, okay? And it takes into account how other people react. And I was thinking of that when I saw Osaka, right? So what happens is the people at the French Open say, you must do these interviews because you are contractually obliged. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
It's the economics. You've it says here the, in this piece of paper. You've, you've signed the contract, and we have figured out that if you do that little piece of confrontation with journalists, which it is, yeah. right? Because they're always, the journalists can be quite obnoxious to them, right? We think, because we've talked to an economist, that this will lead to a 2% increase in the popularity of tennis around the world. Yeah, right? yeah. So that's their framework, right? Yeah. And she says, look, I don't want to because mentally I'm fragile. That's what she said, yeah. right? And they insist on her doing this. So they insist on doubling down on the economics legalistic world because they are convinced of the efficacy and the truth of their position, which is we'll get a 2% bounce in sales or whatever it yeah, happens yeah, to yeah. be, right? And some economist has actually figured out a model, right, that relates TV time in press conferences to sales and our some revenue idea, right? Yeah, yeah. Bigger so, sponsorship, blah, so blah, blah, blah. Whatever it is. So rather than listen to the woman, to the person, to the human being, to the human nature of the human being, they double down and they say, we're going to force you to this. And Naomi Osaka says, okay, well, I'm not going to play. Right? Mm. Then suddenly it becomes a huge issue. Right? And the legalistic, economistic mind, which said, if you don't do this, we will lose out, yeah. loses hugely because now everybody thinks the International Tennis Federation are assholes. Yeah. Right? And the, the young woman is the hero. And what we've got, again, you've got old males, this is the way it's playing out, right, who say, you will do this for us because you're contractually, contractually obliged, mm. seeing the very narrow, narrow view. Incredibly insensitive. Don't see the dynamic, complex, adaptive system yeah. view, which is that the world sides with the fragile person. Right, and rather than seeing the totality, rather than seeing behavioral economics, behavioral science, psychology, crowd dynamics, all these things that I find fascinating and that we're always trying to express when we talk about yeah. to understand economics, you got to understand human nature. They're taking what I would call blackboard economics, textbook economics, and say this is the way the world works, and it's only one answer. When we always know that there are many right answers. So the idea that sometimes economists and experts say, we know the right answer. This was a great example of ridiculously self-confident, legalistic and economic mind saying, we know the right answer. And the right answer is, you have to do this, Ms. Osaka. In actual fact, she has actually turned the tables on them. And this is what I want to talk about. Today. Yeah, well, I was going to say. So, I mean, that's that's a brilliant example of the lack of empathy that's sown into the legalistic, Our static world, as you yeah, say. Yeah, economics, the, the mainstream economics world, as I've always said, John, lacks texture. Yeah. And texture is where our answers are, because texture is where things are complex. So, economics likes sharp edges, right? And definitive conclusions. Yeah. But this is a great example. Where but it's, it's not the economics trying to be a science. Well, it's trying to be what they call a hard science. Yeah. But the truth is hard sciences aren't that hard at all. Actually, they're just a little bit of complex maths. But once you get that, they're not that hard. Yeah. What's really hard are soft sciences. Sciences that are squidgy. And what I like, evolution. Evolution <laughs> is it's messy. Evolution is yeah. messy because it, you can't preordain it. Yeah. But to come back to this idea. Yeah. And what I want to talk about this week is how economics needs, in order to see the big picture, to broaden it and open itself up to the soft sciences. 
So the idea that the hard sciences were hard and definitive is a very, what I would call, 20th century worldview, okay, which mm. is the men in the white coats have the solution, which is Oppenheimer and Einstein and all sure, these people, sure, right? Sure. What I'm talking about now is more 21st century, that the soft sciences, the ones you cannot measure, are actually much more complicated than the ones you can't, which is what Einstein said is a great thing. Not everything that you can measure is important and not everything that is important can be measured, yeah. which is exactly. So even Einstein, the, the hardest of all the hard scientists, understood that there is a messy, complex, evolutionary world, an adaptive world where you do something and I adapt differently and yeah. then somebody else is adapt and it's too difficult to actually mathematically model. But that's the real world and evolution is all about that. Yeah. The, world is, the world is messy. I mean, it's, it's not straight lines. Yeah. It's not clean. It's messy. It's like a table after a party. Yes. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. It's chaos. Like, the chaos of a dinner table after a good night. But you That's know, what the world looks like. But you know, you know the way you could look at issues like Brexit or Trump, like those kind of, the, the reason why Brexit came through was not an economic decision. It was wrapped up in all sorts of human nature and feelings emotions sure. and all that kind of stuff. And that's the messiness yeah. that you're but that's talking the thing about. Is when you mandate people, you want to be very, very sure you know what you're doing because people can give you the strangest answers. And that's the key. It's to get inside people's heads. Yeah. So I want to talk about that. And we have on the line, one of the greatest brains, I think, in behavioral marketing, in advertising, Rory Sutherland. I, like he was in... Was it last year in Kilconomics? He's there most years. And, and the Docky Book Festival. He comes to either one. He loves coming over. I, I was totally enthralled with him. And like, he's a really funny character as well. Now, many years ago, many years ago, I was invited to speak at some swanky Google thing called Google Zeitgeist, which was in a hotel north of London. It must have been about 10 years ago. And it was one of those hotels which was so posh that the English football team stayed there. So you could kind yeah. of smell the wags in the place, you know. It was really <laughs> outstanding. And the bar was full of drinks you couldn't really, we'd never seen in Ireland. And then there was like, there was ice everywhere. You know those places, there's ice everywhere. Sculptures and Sculptures stuff. Sculptures and ice <laughs> oh, and lovely. dry ice. So anyway, I went along and I did my other economic shtick and it was grand. And then I decided to wait around and see who else was on the bill. And one guy was on the bill who's my next guest, Rory Sutherland. And I sat and I laughed and I thought and I rethought and I opened my mind and I actually, after an hour of a tour de force, I actually began to see the world differently. Then, in typical McWilliams fashion, I got out the crook and hooked him by the neck and said, why don't you come to the Dorky Book Festival? And then why don't you come to Kilconomics? And since then, Rory has become part of the gang. And I am delighted to say, not only he's on the line, but he has, I think, the most interesting festival of economics and behavioural science, which kicks off. It's been on for a few years, but because of COVID, it's virtual this year. It kicks off on Friday. It's called Nudge Stock after Woodstock. But the nudge is how do you nudge people to change their behaviour? Rory Sutherland, good morning to you. I was, it's the afternoon. We were actually saying it's almost time for a gin. <laughs> it is, absolutely. Yeah. Before we talk, let's talk about Nudgestock. Let's talk about oh, next Friday. Yeah, let's do tell that. me, yeah. tell me who's coming up, who have you got on the bill? I mean, 
I just I saw a Nobel Prize winner or two. You know, that's not bad. Tell me. Yeah, yeah, we've got uh, Daniel Kahneman. Um, uh, we've got uh, uh, Deirdre McCloskey. Uh, absolutely fantastic talking about humanomics. Yes, I, I know we know Deirdre well. She's been on this absolutely podcast. Fantastic. I, I met her at Kilkenomics, and I've always been captivated. Uh, we have John Cleese. Uh, we have Ruby Wax. Uh, we have Nicholas Christakis. Uh, we have uh, we have the chief behavioural economist from the World Bank speaking, who's absolutely wonderful. Um, and some of their experiments have been absolutely mind blowing. But it's a it's a whole smorgasbord, uh, 12 hours, which you can watch on YouTube. Just register at nudgestock.co.uk. So it's N-U-D-G-E-S-T-O-C-K dot co dot UK. And if you register there, do remember the G because nude stock is a very different website. Um, <laughs> uh, Nudstock.co.uk. Register there. It's free. It's 12 hours. It's Friday the 11th of June. Um, and um, uh, it's also, uh, you, you can watch it at that website, but you can also watch it actually streamed live on uh, YouTube. So if you've got a smart TV, if you like. That's, no, that's brilliant. No, well, we will definitely, we will, we will definitely, and, I, and I, everybody, you know, listening to the podcast, you know, Rory, Nudge stock, behavioral economics. This is the future of our business. Let us talk about silly beliefs in terms of economics, because yeah. when when I, when I sat there uh, and you had to go at both, I think engineers and economists, it resonated with me in a way in which behavioral economics hadn't resonated with me because of a commu- I think a communication problem on those who were communicating it for quite some time. So explain to me, when did you have this moment say, hold on a second, this doesn't really work? So going back to my early period working in direct marketing, you used to repeatedly get findings because what we were paid to do by clients was perform social science experiments, behavioral economics experiments, although we never called them that, at a massive scale. And of course, consumer capitalism is, you know, one of the defenses of marketing and behavioral economics is consumer capitalism is whatever you think of it, the best funded social science experiment in the world, isn't it? You know, we gave yeah. N, N equals six billion. You know, we gave people these, you know, tokens and we watched what they did with them. OK. Yeah. And what, I, I used to get these fascinating findings. And I used to go, look, there needs to be a science around this. Because so, for example, if you sold a product for BT, you probably remember having those things called star services on your phone, call diversion, call waiting. Okay? Yes. And this was the late 80s, so you had no email. Uh, you wrote to people and you said, if you pay £2 so-and-so a month, uh, you can have these various enhancements to your home phone service, diverting calls, call waiting, that kind of thing, okay? Yeah. And, you know, it was really, it was a way of price discriminating. People who use their phone for kind of business or highly, you know, more sensitive purposes were more willing to pay, obviously. Now, what was fascinating was when you allowed people to respond only by phone, you got a 2% response rate. When you allowed people to respond only by post, you got a 4% response rate. But if you gave them the choice of ordering the product by phone or post, free phone or free post, you got a 6% response rate. And I was saying, hold on, this, you know, if you're an economist, this would come across as really weird. Yes. Because it suggests that the biggest determinant of whether you buy the product or not is not what the product is, what its utility is, or how much it costs. The biggest single determinant of whether you order the product is whether you have to make a phone call or whether you have, have, to, to, post uh, have to post it. Now, okay, I think there's something else going on, which is the fact that you have a choice between two ways of responding fundamentally changes your attitude to the transaction. Now, we know about transaction costs. I'm not claiming that economists are totally blind to this stuff. That would be unfair. 
But nonetheless, that, you know, and we kept getting findings like this time after time, where in some cases, the intervention that made sense failed, and the intervention that was a bit batshit crazy was successful. So, I mean, at this time, not done commercially, but done academically, some academics were doing response rates, which showed that your response rate to a loan offer went up more if you showed a smiling person on the phone than they did if you reduced the APR of the loan. Fascinating. It is fascinating. And, it, and, and of course, I, w- I took a slightly less moralistic stance to uh, to uh, uh, behavioural economics, because of course, if people were conventionally economically rational, I'd be out of a job. <laughs> well, actually, <laughs> you know, you know <laughs> what, what one man's bias is another man's bread and butter. Um, but it, it did strike me as extraordinary that this is when I discovered that I wasn't totally alone in my weird worldview. In that the Austrian school, to give them their credit, a very strange school of economics in some respects. But the one thing the Austrian school were clear cut about, which actually led to their reluctance to use mathematics, was that values created in the head, uh, not in the factory. And that is, and a, that is a crucial distinction. The value, crucial distinction. The value is created in the head. And therefore, in any free economy, in any free market, where you don't simply tell people what they have to buy, and where they have a choice of buying from more than one person, the extent to which that product delivers value is dependent on the person's perception of the product, not only its subjective characteristics. Okay, and then how do people like you as admin get into that head and begin to mess around with us? Well, mess around is such a harsh word. No, but you know what I mean. <laughs> no, 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 because, because if you took the Austrian view, okay, and actually Peter Thiel, okay, as a tech writer, makes this same point, which is you can have the best product in the world but if you haven't worked out how to sell it, okay, you've got a lousy business and you haven't created an economic value. And I would argue, by the way, Edison, actually Elon Musk, Steve Jobs, most of the great inventors were actually salesmen every bit as much as they were inventors. Mm. Yeah, no, I agree uh, with you there. Because uh, you, okay. the, 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 poor old, the poor old Tesla may well have been taken back by Elon Musk, but the original Serbo-Croat Tesla, Nikola, couldn't sell. He, he, he couldn't sell. Whereas, I mean, the, the, this if, okay, if you think that marketing is uh, uh, dubious in its morality, no, the whole reason... The, the whole the country, I think no, it's no, fascinating. But it can be. And the whole reason that some American states still execute the death penalty by the electric chair was it was a marketing ploy by... Would you? you I, I promise this is true. To discredit Westinghouse's AC electricity supply. <laughs> No way. So there were two competing forms of domestic yeah. electricity. So essentially, Edison wanted DC, and Westinghouse offered AC. And genuinely, Edison thought if we actually kill people using kill criminals using alternating current electricity, it will act as a kind of further uh, exemplar for my case that AC electricity is dangerous. He lost that one. But that genuinely is the origin of the electric that's, chair. That's it's absolutely horrible. That is extraordinary. But by the way, by the way, in a more wholesome thing, okay, <laughs> we always assume once once a product is suitably embedded uh, in the population, and once it has become to some extent universal and framed as a necessity, we forget the fact that it was necessary to sell that in the first place. Now I've got an ad actually, which is one of my favourite ads from about 1920 from the Dublin Corporation, and the headline is, Use Electricity, okay? Okay. (laughs) 
And it's an ad desperately encouraging people to go into their local Dublin Corporation electricity showroom and get electricity installed in their homes. And okay, to you and me now, this looks like the most ridiculous ad you've ever read. Because I mean, if you bought some strange house which wasn't connected to the electrical grid, okay, day one, you'd basically be onto some electricity board without any marketing being required to get electricity supplied to the premises. Yeah, absolutely. But actually, the, the Dublin housewife, because this was the target audience then of 1920, already had satisfactory workarounds using gas to yeah. light the home, to cook, to heat water. In fact, the geezers were called the glimmer men in Dublin. I don't know if they were called the same in London or in Wales. The, that was the water heating device, was it? Yeah, the glimmer, so the, the glimmer yeah. man was the guy who came around and set the whole thing up at night, you know, and he was the glimmer man and he was very much an actual, there's a boozer, there's a boozer in Harold's Cross, Jonathan, called the glimmer man. Yeah. Actually, which is actually beloved of heavy metalers and bikers these days. Oh, we should the, take a, a little trip there. Exactly. But the original Glimmerman, yeah. so keep talking. So the Glimmerman was Dublin's gas-related yeah. guy. So, so and, and by the way, by the way, I mean, there would have been, yeah. I didn't realise this, but there would have been social awkwardness to installing electricity if you were mates with your Glimmerman. Because it was like a slap in the face to him. Absolutely. In the same way that we're a bit embarrassed, if you live next to a local shop, you're a bit embarrassed having the Ocado van turn up. You know, <laughs> yeah. because it basically is saying to your local grocer, you know, swivel. Okay, I don't need you anymore. Right? Yeah. And of course, the reason the electricity boards actually operated shops selling appliances is they needed something to get the usage up. Because if exactly. you just installed electric light and you didn't use electricity for anything else, you weren't that valuable a customer. Mm. I mean, what I'm saying is all of that stuff's been forgotten, but it was necessary, just as it is now necessary for electric cars. This is one of my great arguments, okay, in my book. The reason you have to test wacky things is because there are far more good ideas that can be post-rationalized than there are good ideas that can be pre-rationalized. And that the majority of good ideas are only obvious in retrospect. Well, that is very true. That is very, very true. If you make it a requirement, I mean, most scientific discoveries are actually, you know, penicillin being the most famous. Most scientific discoveries basically are you know, a Darwin or a Fleming going, what the fuck's going on here, <laughs> right? Yeah. Okay, but that's where it all starts. It doesn't start with, well, clearly what we need is some sort of uh, mould or, or uh, you know, suitable thing that will consume bacteria. It doesn't start with rational sequential thought. It starts with, as Matt Ridley calls it, it's a, the biology is a science of exceptions. Yes. And I, th- I, I think this is really important because what we're doing in business, by the way, great book, and actually... Get, get, get him to kill, get him to kill economics. Um, I'll gift um, When More Is Not Better by Roger L. Martin, who's a Canadian business guru. Okay. Well, what's, what's, what's Canadians the are always worth it because Canadians are better than us, aren't they? Don't you agree? Well, well, well we, we have, have our very own Canadian here. In the room, yeah. J- in the room. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're just yeah. better. They're just better. I'm sorry. You know, it, it, but you you're know. right, actually. Galbraith was a better economist than most. He was a better writer than most. Mulden of Fleming, Mulden of uh, Mulden I think Fleming. what it is is you've got a bunch of bright people but you've also got to know how to build a log cabin. I reckon that's what it is. Because if you leave Canadians unattended, they'll always start building something out of wood, won't they? It's like, it's instinctive. And that, but no, no. But, but one, of the, one of my great problems is all the sanest countries in the world get very little press coverage. You never, you never hear a news story in Canada because nothing's happening, right? But what we ought to do is we ought to send people over Canada and go, you know, given that there's this extraordinary absence of bad news emanating from Canada, we ought to assume they're doing something right. We better try and copy that. It's a very, it's a very good, it's true. You know, you don't say, oh, let's go to Serbia. You know, <laughs> it's true, you know, just, just for well, the no, actually, 
really interesting one. The Serbs did a totally boss job of vaccination. They did. And they- intriguingly, they're the only country I know of, back to my original story, which offered people a choice of vaccine. They did the Chinese and the Russian one, didn't they? I think you had a choice of two. So you might have had Sinovac and Sputnik. Yeah. And I think there was a third one. They might have had AstraZeneca as well. But the interesting thing there, you see, is that if you get people debating which vaccine to have, they're not debating whether to get vaccinated or not. And so it might be a brilliant example of the Serbs instigating what I call placebo choice, which is if you give people a choice, it changes where their frame of reference lies. Because they're now thinking A or B rather than A or not A. And it's a classic case where the recontextualization of something changes your attitude to it. Now, economics is based on an assumption of context-free value creation, okay? That the creation of value is that, that the consumer knows what they want in advance. They know exactly to the penny what they're prepared to pay for it, okay? And they completely trust the person who's selling it. OK, now and also it's based on an assumption that a dollar is a dollar is a dollar, that the amount of pain I experience parting with a dollar is exactly the same, regardless of my mood or the thing I think I'm doing when I spend that dollar. Now, we know, by the way, that um, uh, quite often uh, you can sell more of something by putting the price up. Yes. OK, give me the now, best example of that. Give me the best uh, example of that. We have a really interesting marketing problem with British sparkling wine, um, which is that British sparkling wine is actually really solid. I'm not just saying this kind of Brit. OK, and that post Brexit, you know, we need to big this shit up, um, <laughs> which you do, <laughs> which you do. But, but it, it's actually got a problem because if unless you actually brand it heavily and make it known that it's 25 pounds, as they've done with a few. Okay, it's useless as a gift because even though the eight ninety nine British sparkling wine might be better than a twenty pound champagne, you can't take it to a dinner party or give it as a birthday present. No, because no matter how much you go on about I bought this because it's better than champagne, everybody goes, "No, you didn't. You bought it because it's eight ninety nine. <laughs> you tight one, right?" Yeah, I guess. And it doesn't matter how good the wine is. And by the way, you won't enjoy it as much unless it's expensive either. Because so one of the people we have speaking, and this is wonderful, by the way. Joe Fatterini, the wine expert, is speaking at Nudgestock on the 11th of June, nudgestock.co.uk. <laughs> and one of the observations he's made is he said, if you look at the wine industry, right, everybody in the wine industry practices a different form of economics depending on what they do. So he said, the vineyard owner is effectively like a French physiocrat, okay? He think the, thinks the value is created in the land because yes. it's my terroir. Okay, and it's this particular mixture of chalk and soil which establishes the grapes in this, you know, etc. Okay, right. And then he says the winemaker, the guy who does the work, is basically a Marxist. He's the labor theory of value, right? It's all yep. the stuff we do with barrels and turning the bottles and doing this. That's where the value comes from. Yeah. Okay. And then he said wine dealers are basically free market economists. You know, it's all just supply and demand. Okay. Yep. And then he says, wine marketers are Austrian school economists. They're basically, how do we create the maximum perceived value out of the least amount of expense elsewhere? And there are wonderful findings. Cork enables you to charge more for a wine, having a cork rather than a screw top. If you have two labels on the bottle, you can charge 15% more. People think wine from a bottle that's heavier, a heavier bottle is a better wine. 
And um, also they think that actually wine that's expensive tastes better in blind tastings. And also the wine, the wine marketers know that you can have the same wine in different conditions at the same wine tasting. And among wine experts, virtually nobody notices it's the same wine. So there's a huge amount of perceptual bullshit going on in the wine trade. But what I think is so beautiful about this, you see, is in a sense, they're all right. They're all, it's all true. They are all right. The land makes a contribution. That's the French physiocrat position. Yep. The work undoubtedly makes a difference. That's the Marxist labour theory. You know, undoubtedly, there are questions of supply and demand that affect price. I'm not denying that economics plays its role. But then marketing also matters a huge amount because you could produce a fantastic wine. And if you sold it, in the wrong way, in the in, in a wine box, for example, It'd be a really great experiment, wouldn't it, to put Chateau, you know, Chateau Lafitte forty-five in a wine box with a little plastic, you know, and see how people because we've done this, okay? People have taken KFC chicken to an organic food fair and they've handed it out, and everybody goes, "Oh, it's absolutely fantastic!" Which, by the way, KFC chicken is fantastic, right? So, so here, this is, by the way, a really important point because. In a sense, all four of those processes are interdependent. But what's happened is that the, the neoliberal economists have grabbed control of the game because theirs is the most deterministic and most mathematical. Yes. And this is this is my gripe. Discipline. This is my gripe with economics. Yeah. Okay. So because the neoliberals and because of what you might describe as I was describing as, as kind of a physics envy, right? That when when we were kids. The, the really clever fellas did physics in university, right? And then economists thought, oh my goodness, if we're going to be taken seriously, we should be as hard as the physics guys, the physicists, yeah. right? And the physicists, they brought us, you know, they explained the world in the 20th century. So it was very much the 20th century was the, the world of physics. So economics said, well, if we're, we're as clever as those guys. And suddenly what you get is you get herded into a more narrow and narrow and narrow view, further and further away from the creature you're trying to be actually studying which is this beautiful thing called the human being. So J.J. McCloskey's point about humanomics is that economics needs to absorb insights from the humanities. Now, lawyers will always define a problem in legalistic terms, and economists will always define the problem in economic terms. Once you've defined the problem in psychology-free spaces, you've basically shrunk your possible solution space down to a very small area of mostly economic interventions. Now, I think the reason people don't allow psychology into the space is the last thing they want to do is expand the solution space. And yes. I think this is an inherent anti-creative bias in all decision-making, because the more creativity that's involved, the more I might have to make a subjective decision or I might have to test. And testing is an admission of ignorance, and the expert wants to pretend they know in advance. Yeah. Okay. To be honest, you can really spot an expert in economics when they say, I don't know, but let's try and find out. OK, that's that's what you want from an economic expert, not a guy saying, well, I was talking to Janet Yellen at the Fed and yeah. what she was saying. But that's it's the latter that makes you look like a uh, an economic expert. Right. You're absolutely it's right. Dropping you know names what? about Janet Yellen. Yeah. It's my... not saying, "Ooh, that's funny. Let's go and try that out. But Darwin. Right. Darwin and Fleming were both. Ooh, that's fucking odd. What's going on here, right? Okay. And yet you have this weird thing, which is everybody wants to believe it because, A, you minimise the risk of blame because if your recommendation is consistent with economic theory, 
you can't really get blamed for it because it looks like an objective decision, even though it, the, the subjectivity lies in the selection of the model. Now, tell me, before we go, Rory, just one question that John had for you. John, your question was... It, Rory, how are you doing? Um, we had, last week, we did a couple of podcasts, a two-part series on Bitcoin, which I thought was fascinating, actually. But I'm curious about what an ad man's view of cryptocurrencies would be and how would you go about selling them? Okay, I have a really mischievous theory here, which is probably going to get me fired, okay? I think gold evolved as a currency for prostitution, okay? Right. Now, bear with, so I think that gold as a currency has fairly dubious origins, which is that, okay, so people would have discovered gold and they would have said, well, it's useless for weapons. If you make a spear out of gold, it just bends, Okay. I can't use I can't cut flint with gold. It's too soft and malleable. But boy, does the opposite sex like a bit of gold, right? <laughs> now, what is the perfect currency for prostitution? Okay. Something that the other gender likes more than you do. Yeah, right. Okay. <laughs> now, it's better than food in that respect, right? Now, this is a totally mischievous theory. And no one's debunked it, okay? But think about it, right? That is the perfect currency, isn't it? Something, some, It's why you could buy Manhattan for beads, right? Mm. It's because you thought, look at these shitty beads, but they were going, fuck, I've never seen beads like this before, right? <laughs> yep. Okay, whereas they didn't really think of the real estate as all that great. But anyway, <laughs> the interesting thing there is that, A, for a currency to be valuable, it doesn't need to be valuable to you, it just needs to be valuable to someone else. Yeah. Okay, so there is that argument that I don't need to buy three AK-47s and a kilo of skag, but if other people do, then this currency will do the job. (laughs) You can only have 21 million of them. So so the answer is that, anyway, that's a very mischievous theory. But it is borne out by the fact they've done experiments with primates where you give primates a currency, and they learn to, uh, non-human primates. Yeah. We've done the experiment with humans for quite a few years. Um, uh, But you give non-human primates, and one of the reasons they have to close close the experiments down is that they evolve prostitution very rapidly. Wow. Wow, really? So I can't remember whether it's bonobos or chimps or what particular animal it is, but they effectively evolve that fairly quickly. And so what you're saying, if if Bitcoin is, as you said, five AK-47s, a bag of skag, uh, uh, you know, that's how it starts. That's possibly how, how, how gold started. That's just a theory, okay? Very mischievous. But on the other hand, I, I genuinely don't know enough about currency theory to know whether it's actually uh, a Ponzi scheme uh, or whether it is actually a stable source of value and whether it will actually stabilise. But I far prefer the idea that the nefarious origins should, yeah. should not exclude us from imagining that this will become a currency. And, and, you know, there are cases where, for example, it seems like for a huge period of time, men all wore these flint axes, which were honed to a level of perfection, which was not necessary for any purpose in terms of weaponry or tool making. And that these were just a weird status device for a period of time in human evolution. Yeah, it was like a Burberry, it, it was like a Burberry tracksuit in its day. Yeah. And the flint axe, you made sure you had a pretty damn good flint axe and you wore it with you, or the mobile phone. And you showed it off. And you showed it off. And so, you know, there there is some interesting stuff about status signaling there, uh, which could explain gold and could explain the the, the flint axe. But I I must admit, I mean, the whole currency thing, of course, is that all currencies are sort of crypto in the sense they require just their value resides in other people believing they're valuable. Well, this is exactly Mm. the point, and we'll conclude it there. Well, no, no, don't quite, because... If you understand this problem, 
higher education becomes hugely problematic. Which because is because people get higher education because other people get higher education. Big, is what you're saying. Well, okay, here, here are a few things which I think are really important, which have happened, which nobody's noticed. When I left university in 1988, okay, a good degree from a pretty good university was sufficient but not necessary to get you a reasonable job. Okay, now it's necessary but not sufficient, and there's a very very big difference between those two states of affairs. Mm. Yeah, no, okay. I agree with you completely. So sufficient. We all got pissed at university, as you probably did, because you knew that if the worst came to the worst, you could get a graduate job in some accountancy firm. You weren't going to starve to death, right? Yep, in an insurance now, firm. God forbid. That was the that was the big that was my big uh, that, fear. That, that was my that was fear. your biggest fear. But that job thing now, there are a few problems here, which is the status of a university. Okay, first of all, you turn this thing into a necessity. It's now it's now necessary but not sufficient, which creates hyper competition. You can't afford to get pissed at university anymore. Yeah. But the second issue is that if you look at high status university, people choose a university not on how good it is, but on what other people think of it. Yeah. Because mm. it's a reputation yeah. tool. Mm. Okay. And therefore, it's almost impossible to dislodge a Harvard or an Oxford or a Trinity College Dublin because their reputation is essentially mimetically formed. Yes. No, you I don't do. want to go to the best university. You want to go to the one that has the best reputation. Yeah, and the ones that uh, uh, everybody else thinks is the best. Yeah. So now what some people are doing, they're gaming the system. They get into Harvard, they get a letter of admission from Harvard, offering them admission, which costs nothing. By contrast, graduating from Harvard costs you $250,000. Million, $250, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Right? They go around Silicon Valley with their admission letter and they say, I've got into Harvard, but I'd rather work for you. What about it? So I'm actually the the sort of the Zuckerberg before Zuckerberg. Like they're saying, I'm cleverer than Zuckerberg. He did a year in Harvard. He, he, he actually, <laughs> he, and, he and Gates stuck around for a year. I'm not even bothering to do that. Right? Oh, that's clever. But it's a really interesting question because what it suggests is that the admission is the thing that has value. And therefore it's a credentialist endeavor. Yes. It's, it's, it's the madness of third level and fourth level. But the madness of third and fourth level where people are saying, you know, the PhD is the new MPhil, right? Yeah. The madness of that kind of runaway signalling is a really significant problem. Well, I tell you what, this is all going to be in discussed at Nudge Stock on yeah. Friday. But Rory, it has been a pleasure as always around the houses, Fantastic completely around stuff. the houses. Listen, Fantastic. Rory, and I will see you. I'll hear you on Friday, Friday, June the eleventh, NudgeStock.co.uk. Frank, great stuff, Rory. Take care. Thanks, Rory. See, see you. Bye. 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 Cheers. Bye. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. 
Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Great fun, Rory, isn't he? Every time. Like, he's such entertainment. But it's hard to keep up with them. Like, it's, it's, it's idea after idea, idea. And they're rolling into one another and stuff. I remember his line. He's a hard line, edit. He's a hard edit for the line. The, remember he was talking about a, a rose is a weed with a marketing department. Yeah. Or with an advertising <laughs> no, budget. No, a, a flower is just a weed with an advertising budget. Yeah, it's just <laughs> great stuff. And the way he thinks about the world. Is if, and the reason the way he thinks about the world is different is because he understands where value comes from. And value comes from the mind. Yeah. And economists think that value comes from a production process, yeah. right? That if we add all the little widgets together, like the labor and the capital and the rate of interest and the rent and the factory and blah, 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 then we come to a price that people will say, okay, that's what this thing is worth. Yeah. But we know that's not the case at all. Yeah. We know that value is a deeply, deeply subjective idea. It's not objective. It's subjective. So, for example, what he was talking about, when you see it all the time, in the high end of the art world, the reason that people buy Picassos is because other people buy Picassos. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Other rich people, right? And that drives these things through the roof. There's no perception of value. The value is entirely within the mind. Well, it's that, it's that great advertising phrase as well, isn't it? Like, can't remember who said it, but, you know, I know that half my advertising budget works. I just don't know which half. But exactly, exactly. <laughs> I mean, you know, like, you think, do you ever remember, do you remember that ad for Alka-Seltzer? Plink, plink, fizz. Yeah. Do you know why that was? Go on. Because you would have thought, plink, plink. They wanted to sell two tablets, not one. Oh, right. That's yeah, it, yeah. right? So you get into people's heads. Yeah, you say, yeah. ooh, blink, blink, yeah. fizz. So they figured... Plink was not going to do the job at all. Plink, so you need two plinks, yeah. right? But what they figured out, we can sell twice as many of the drug. Yeah, genius. Yeah, it is genius. Yeah. It is genius. So again... An underhand value, at the same time. But, well, you know, value is in people's heads. Now, what Rory talked about there, I think the wine, because you like your wine. I right? do indeed. And I thought his analysis there was... Fantastic. So he's talking about the four different processes that are involved in John Davis going to O'Brien's to buy wine, Yeah, right? Yeah. The first one was that the winemaker in France, there was a, a French, the original 17th century economists were called physiocrats, okay? And they were French. Mm. Actually, a lot of economics came from France because France was the biggest country in Europe. You know, mm. you What's a physiocrat? So physiocrats were a breed of economists was a branch of economics mm. which said that the inherent wealth of the country stems from the land. Right, okay. Yeah, and yeah, the yeah. fertility of the land. Mm. And this, again, is because France was a very large agricultural country, right? So the, they, their idea was that France should always have a GDP, even they hadn't figured out what GDP was, but have a wealth that was related to land. Yeah. And that, of course, comes from empire building from the Romans, etc. So the more land you acquire the more land you have, and obviously the wealthier you should become. So he's saying that, and that was very much the economics of the 16th century till about the 18th century, which was that if you have land 
And this is, of course, why Ireland was colonised, because it was a physiocrat idea, right? That we will actually colonise these people, we'll give the land to our lads, we'll throw the peasants off the land, Mm. and the land will be the source of wealth, right? And, and, it was, true, and the fact that it was it was seen as stuff that could be highly productive. Yeah, this is why fellas from me always talk about their good land. Yeah. Vis-a-vis fellas from Mayo, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay, the good land, right? The strong farmer, yeah. right? But, and in a world of agricultural product, in the ancient economy before it became innovative and sophisticated, of course, I think there's a lot to be said for physiocrats. So take the bottle of wine. So the wine owner is a physiocrat, mm. the winemaker, right? Mm. And he's talking about the chalk and the salt and the sun and yeah, la, 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 yeah, la, la, yeah. right? The water, all that sort of good stuff. Then he says, and I think this is really interesting, the person who bottles the wine, the wine producer, is a Marxist, right? Because yeah. for the producer, the value go, is actually the labor that goes into actually taking the wine out of the vats, squashing the whole thing, yada, yada, yeah, yada, yeah, yeah. putting it into bottles, and away you go. Then the wine merchant, so the O'Briens of this world, mm. is a free market neoliberal. So they're taking supply and demand of wine from... France, Spain, and Italy, and it's all about price and all that sort of yeah. thing, right? And then, of course, you have the person who figures out how to get inside people's heads, like the, the labeler, right? Mm. And it's very, very true that even though there's no evidence for it, corked wine, as he was saying, seems posher than screw top. Yes, yeah, yeah. Right? That was always the big thing. Right? Yeah, whereas there's no evidence of that at yeah. all. In fact, that you could argue that screw top is much more sophisticated because it doesn't ever, ever get corked. Yeah, exactly, right? exactly. Okay, and you need to notice this completely at restaurants, I've always noticed, is that waiters and waitresses who know nothing about wine offer you to taste screw top wine. Yes. There's no reason to taste true. it. Right? That's true. Yeah, because okay. tasting isn't isn't supposed to be do you like it or not? No, exactly. Is it is, is, it, is, is it, it good? <laughs> is it actually off or not? Yeah. yeah. So, you know, to double label, you know, what I was amazed by was in Argentina, talking to friends of mine who are involved in the wine trade mm. in and around Mendoza, and they create brands and they just make up the story. Yeah. So the, the wine <laughs> that doesn't surprise me. Yeah, at the all. wine was like this was the you know the Cortes family arrived here in 1762. <laughs> in 1743, yeah. they brought a vine over from Granada, all made up. Yeah, all made up. Right? <laughs> they have big vats of wine because Argentina produces loads of it. Yeah, and you just basically say that'll be you know a certain type, and we'll make up a story, yeah. and that'll be a certain type. It's all the same. Yeah, but the story is different. But that's where value is. And what Rory is saying, and this is why it's important, is that unless you see the totality of the product that you're about to drink, where the value comes from, where various people in the production process see the value, why, for example, neoliberal economics only gets a tiny bit, Mm. right? Mm. Okay. And where marketing and behavioral psychology is so interesting is the value that you are prepared to pay for something is entirely within your own head. And what's beautiful about psychology and marketing is that it understands this, the fragility. And this is like where Bitcoin and the whole cryptocurrencies is based on. Yeah, well, I mean, you you asked him the question about Bitcoin Mm. and I thought his answer about gold was fascinating. Yeah, yeah. And and if you're interested in currencies, and I know a a lot of our listeners are, there is a great book called The Power of Gold by Peter Bernstein, who's a brilliant financial historian. Really, really well worth it. But what Rory's saying is that 
just because Bitcoin is now used to buy AK-47s and bags of skag doesn't mean that it might not necessarily end up being of value and a currency for somebody in the future. And he said the story of gold could well be it. But what he's talking about, again, is perceptions and value and ideas. But to conclude, what is fascinating is that for economics to actually be really relevant and more relevant than it is now, our strapline at the top is all about human nature. And what he's saying is not only do you have to understand human nature, but you've got to go deeper and understand that advertisers who are usually looked down upon Mm. as sort of snake oil salesmen actually have a huge amount to say about humanity. And what he's also saying is that economics, which looks at the world as static and two-dimensional, fails because of its obsession with mathematics. This is the key. So when economists decided that we were mathematicians, we decided that we'd get really elegant maths and the elegant mathematical formulas needed to work really perfectly. But in order for the maths to work really perfectly, we had to make assumptions about humanity, which were so bizarre and off the wall and anti-human that we actually put the elevation or the elegance of mathematics before the reality. It's like, for example, you know, economists always say, well, my models are very important, yeah. right? And models are important, but they're meant to simulate reality, right? They're meant to be a good proxy. But if your models are not a good proxy for reality... They're useless. Yeah, then it's fuckology, right? Then you're actually, you know, it's a sort of an intellectual masturbation about things, right? Mm. So it's a bit like saying, like, imagine a flight simulator had got nothing at all to do with the reality of a plane. Yeah, yeah. It would be completely useless for pilots. But the reason it's useful is it simulates what happens in real life and then pilots can practice. Economic models do not simulate what happens in real life and therefore they just become some part of some academic indulgence. Whereas what Rory is saying is go out and test, ask people questions. This idea of taking wacky ideas and deducing from them whether things work or not, I think is fascinating. Yeah. But what that means, it means it takes time and... You can never preordain things. And one of the problems with economics and the law, these two particularly dominant... Pillars of society. Yeah, and ways of thinking, is that they want to preordain outcomes. They want to say, if we do this, this will happen. So let's go back to Naomi Osaka, where we started, right? Had they decided to trial run what might have happened had they been seen to be bullying a 23-year-old girl who has mental health issues off the court, they would never have done what they did. But because they came to the view with a sort of inflated confidence of the expert, they have managed not only not to enhance the image of tennis, but to profoundly, profoundly detract from the image of tennis worldwide. Now, just before you go, I have to tell you that our conversation with Rory Sutherland went on for well over an hour and we discussed all sorts of stuff. He was fantastic, but I had to cut it down for the podcast and just stick to the main points. However, we're going to put the full unedited conversation up on Patreon for our Patreons. So if you want to hear that, why don't you sign up to Patreon at patreon.com forward slash David Mark Williams. Believe me, it's well worth it.